Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16 is our text this morning. The title of the message is Man Overboard. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. Jonah's one of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are the 12 minor prophets. And we don't refer to them as minor prophets because the truth contained in their books is less significant. We refer to them as the minor prophets specifically because in comparison, the books are more brief. We refer to them as the minor prophets because of the brevity uh, of the book in comparison to the other prophetical writings in our Bibles. We began several weeks ago with Jonah being called to do two things. We opened our study, looking at verses 1 through 3. The opening of the story is Jonah being called by the Lord to do two things. First of all, to go. Second of all, to preach. But we soon learned that Jonah did not like what God had asked him to do. It wasn't the call out or the preach part of God's call to Jonah that Jonah resisted, for he was a prophet, and thus he was used to preaching. The rub for Jonah was in the go, more specifically in the go to Nineveh part of God's call. You see, Nineveh was a Gentile city full of, in Jonah's perspective, pagans who did not deserve the grace of God. They were outside of the covenant people of God. They, they, they did not have the oracles of God, the word of God, as was given to Israel. They were pagans. And in Jonah's mind, they did not deserve the grace of God. And on top of that, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Now, what you need to know there is the Assyrians were enemies of Israel. And so it wasn't the location of Nineveh that Jonah despised, but rather the people who resided there that Jonah despised. Jonah let his nationalistic pride as a Jew stir hatred in his heart for the Assyrian Gentiles in Nineveh. Jonah was fearful that if he obeyed God and went to Nineveh and preached, just like God had called him to do, that God would have had mercy on the Assyrians and that God would have saved them. It won't be too long until we turn the page into chapter 4 where Jonah tells us that himself. In what sounds to be almost unapologetic words, Jonah says, this is why, he's talking to God, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah feared that if he obeyed God, God would save his enemies, and Jonah hated that thought. Because Jonah didn't think his enemies were worthy of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we're guilty of the same sin. We oftentimes pick and choose who we think deserves to hear the gospel. If you're anything like your pastor, that was never an option given to us. God called Israel, his chosen people, to be a blessing. Matter of fact, if you can remember back, if you can catalog your mind back all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God told Abraham, speaking about uh, future generations, about his chosen people, Israel, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. 
But unfortunately, Israel oftentimes circled the wagons and excluded the surrounding nations. They were grateful for God's blessing, but they certainly weren't interested in sharing it. The problem is is that God made Israel a great nation and made her a name among the nations so that ultimately his name would be great among the nations. It's Malachi 1.11. God says, my name will be made great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. My name will be great. So what did God do? God raised up a whole people group, a covenant people group that he called to himself to be his very own, the apple of his eye, and he raised them up and he gave them a name and he blessed them in order that they would be a blessing to the surrounding nations so that they would be a witness of Yahweh to the surrounding nations. But Israel, something like a lot of local churches today, circled the wagons. And were content to be insular instead of using the blessing that God had given them to point the world to Yahweh. We're guilty of the same sin. When it came to being a blessing to Israel's enemies, Jonah checked out. He wasn't interested. But we soon learned that God doesn't take no for an answer. Does he? Everybody shake your head like this. God does not take no for an answer. Now, before we throw Jonah into the sea of condemnation, while we stand firmly on our boats of self-righteousness, we need to assess our own faults here. Here are a couple of questions that we could ask ourselves. Are we daily taking up our own cross and following God? Is there sin in our lives that we need to repent of? Are we proclaiming the gospel and making disciples like our good shepherd commanded us to do? And the questions could go on and on and on here. But I think if we were honest, the answer to those questions leave us all with much room for growth. Some of us here this morning are sleeping on the ship of disobedience, just like Jonah was. And I want to encourage us never to presume upon God's kindness. God will, as I have said in previous weeks, and it bears repeating, God will wreck our plans when we refuse to obey his commands. You can take it to the bank. God will wreck our plans when we refuse to obey his commands. And notice that God reveals himself. God always does everything that he does to set his glory and his nature and his character and his attributes on display. And the book of Jonah, the account of Jonah is no different. It's the patience of God that allows Jonah to flee. Just like it is God's patience that allows us at times to flee. We should never presume upon God's patience and kindness, by the way, though. But it is God's patience. It's the wisdom of God that provided a ship. Because the ship was the vehicle that was going to ring Jonah's bell, so to speak. The wind and the waves, the storm that God hurled against the ship was the vehicle, was the megaphone that God was going to use to ring his prophet's bell. It was the wisdom of God. It's the providence of God that sends the storm. And it's the kindness of God, as we'll see next week, that sends the great fish. God does everything he does to set his nature, character, and attributes on display. As I noted in earlier weeks, the book of Jonah is is not a book primarily about Jonah. It's not a book primarily about a pagan city, capital, 
called Nineveh. It's not a book primarily about a great fish. It's a book primarily about God. Having said that, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand this morning for the reading of God's word if you have the ability. This is Jonah, presumably, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16, and these are the words that he pens. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they, that is the mariners, cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And then he, Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do with you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. For they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Brothers and sisters, It's good to be reminded that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Go ahead and take a seat. Let's get a running start here. Let me tell you where we've been last week. Last week I noted that sin always comes with a cost. Sin always comes with a cost or at a cost but we rarely consider the true cost of sin in the moment. Sin never thinks down the road. Sin is always irrational. It only considers the immediate. It only considers the moment. It only thinks about the here and the now. It never considers future repercussions. Secondly, we noted that sin always invites the discipline of God. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, reminds us that the omnipotent, that is God, has servants everywhere. The Lord is never short of sheriff's officers to arrest his fugitives. And we see here in the book of Jonah that the officer that God uses is the storm. God hurls the storm to arrest back to him his prophet. The Lord is never short of sheriff's officers to arrest his fugitives. And lastly, last week, this is where we ended, we noted that sin always splatters. Sin is like painting with spray paint. It gets on what you aim it at, but the overspray gets on everything else around us. But perhaps the most grievous reality of sin is its offense in light of God's purity and holiness. The Puritan preacher and the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, once said this. Some strong language here in this quote, by the way. 
He says, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. If we considered sin in those terms, I would submit that it would probably curb most of our sinful behavior. Or a good amount, rather, of our sinful behavior. If we understood the true cost of sin, we might pursue righteousness by God's grace more often than we do. Well, I said sin always comes at a cost. I said that that sin always splatters, and sin doesn't think down the road. Let me tell you one thing sin doesn't do this morning. If you're taking notes, here's number one on your outline. One thing that sin doesn't do is sin does not thwart God's plan. Sin never thwarts God's plan. You have your Bible sitting there on your lap. Look back at verse 7 for just a moment. And they, that is the mariners or the sailors, your translation may say, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And notice this last phrase. And the lot fell on Jonah. And there's a very encouraging message here in Jonah chapter 1. And that encouraging message is that God's sovereignty is in no way challenged by our disobedience. God will do what God will do through our obedience, or God will do what God will do through our disobedience, but God will always do what God is going to do. You catch that? That is a wonderful reality. Now, let me back that up by saying, Just because God will do what God wants to do, just because God's purposes and his eternal plan will be accomplished, whether in our obedience or our disobedience, never, capital N, capital E, capital V, capital E, capital R, never gives us license to sin because we know that God will accomplish his or God will accomplish his will, his way, his purpose, his designs in light of our disobedience just as he will our obedience. But you need to know that. Sin won't thwart God's plan. God's sovereignty supersedes even our sin. We left off with our story last Sunday morning with Jonah being awakened by the ship's captain. And as Jonah lies sleeping there in the, in the cargo hold of the ship or in the sleeping quarters of the ship, Presumably, the captain and and all the mariners or all the sailors are up on deck trying to bail water from the ship's deck, and they're trying to figure out how how in the world are we going to survive this storm. As you you read through the account uh, of the storm there in Jonah chapter 1, what you see, the author, again, presumably Jonah, we don't know that for certain, but, but as we look back through Christian history, most reliable, trustworthy pastors, commentators, theologians have attributed the work to Jonah's pen himself. And as you look at Jonah's writing of the storm, you see that it grows and it intensifies and it gets greater and bigger as the story progresses. These sailors, these mariners, this captain, they're on deck presumably bailing water, trying to figure out how in the world they are going to survive this great storm, a storm of proportions which they have not seen before. I had noted in past messages that these are probably Phoenician sailors. Phoenician just means Greek. 
Phoenician Greek sailors who, who would have been expert mariners. As a matter of fact, there, there would have been a sailing season and a non-sailing season. These, these sailors would have known when they could not be on the water. They would have known what storm season was. And so the fact that they're on the water lets us know something about the fact that this must have been calm season, trading season for, for ships to traverse back and forth across the Mediterranean Sea. But on top of that, because of the language in the original Hebrew, it appears as though this is a storm unlike they had ever seen before. It's interesting to note Solomon's words here, thinking back about our sleeping prophet. Solomon writes in Proverbs 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and then poverty will come upon you like a robber, like a robber and want like an armed man. You see, these pagan sailors had been praying to their pantheon of gods, hoping to name and appease the one who was responsible for the storm, all the while Jonah is sleeping. When the captain finds Jonah sleeping, much to his surprise in what I think is bewilderment, he says, what do you mean, O sleeper, or What are you doing asleep? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Again, these must have been very chilling words to Jonah because it's the exact same language that God used back in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out to it. And here this pagan sea captain says, Arise, same language, and call out to your God. Chilling words these must have been to Jonah's ear. Sadly, we have no indication that Jonah rose and joined the prayer meeting on the ship's deck. It's ironic, and there's a lot of irony uh, as we weave our way through Jonah. But it's ironic that Jonah is being asked by a pagan ship captain to pray to the very God from which he is trying to flee. I mean, do you get the picture here? Do you see what... What God is doing, God is knocking on the cranium of his prophet. Wake up, Jonah. Do you see what's happening? Can you understand what's going on? You're in active rebellion. You're trying to flee. But in my providence, I'm sending the storm to arrest you back. Now, it's important that we remember that Jonah was a prophet, The ordinary Hebrew word for prophet is navi, and it's derived from another word which has the idea of that which bubbles forth. You think about a prophet or a preacher or a teacher. It comes from the Hebrew word which means to bubble forth like a fountain. Hence the word prophet means one who announces or pours forth the declarations of God. But in this case, Jonah had nothing to say. Here is Jonah, a prophet, the one who's supposed to be bubbling forth, thus says the Lord, and he's quiet. Jonah has nothing to say. As as each dip of of the, the ship's bow into the water, Jonah is drifting farther and farther away from God. Not only is Jonah out to sea physically, but he is out to sea spiritually as well. He's lost his spiritual anchor He's lost all of his spiritual mooring, and so he is drifting dangerously into tumultuous waters. You see, when we fail to hold fast to the Word of God, eventually we will drift from the Word of God. 
Write it down, mark it down, underline it, star it, put it in parentheses, bracket it, do whatever. When we navigate away from the word of God, we will soon drift in our thoughts and actions. It's true. That's the reality. When we pull the anchor of our lives from the sure foundation of the word of God, spiritual chaos is always the result. Now, meanwhile, back up on deck. Unsuccessful in discerning which which God, lowercase g, is responsible for the storm, the sailors concluded that the tragic, uh, the tragic storm was the result of divine wrath or wrongdoing on some man on board. And so what did they do? They began the pagan practice, or at least the, the primarily pagan practice, of casting lots to find out, verse 7, on whose account this evil has come upon us. And the casting of the lots fell to Jonah. They fell to Jonah. You know, it's interesting. Proverbs 16, Solomon tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the casting of lots. Here, God is sovereign over all things. Friends, nothing happens by chance. There is no such thing as a fluke. There is no such thing as fate or fortune or luck or destiny or coincidence. God sits on the throne and everything that comes to pass in our lives is the result of his sovereign, omnipotent, and wise providence. You believe that? You believe that? Do you believe it when you sit in front of the doctor And he says, stage four terminal cancer, six weeks to live. That's when the rubber meets the road. That's where your theology gets put into practice. And in other situations like it. Nothing happens by chance. God sits sovereignly on the throne in everything that comes to pass, including the casting of these lots which fall to Jonah comes from the hand of the sovereign, omnipotent, wise providence of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, which if you're ever studying the book of Romans, I would highly commend to you Donald Gray Barnhouse's four-volume commentary on Romans. It is excellent, excellent, excellent. This is what Barnhouse says here. He says, man throws the dice, but it's God who makes the spots come up. In this case, it was God's providence that Jonah won the lottery or lost it, depending on how you look at it. You see, Jonah could have saved these sailors a good amount of trouble if he just would have been honest with them about his guilty conscience. But herein lies the problem, friends. Sin dulls the conscience. The more we suppress God's word, the more we disobey, the farther from God we run, the more desensitized our conscience becomes. Here's what we try to do often. And I'm in the crosshairs here. Here's what we try to do often. We try to manage our sin, which oftentimes includes trying to conceal it until the, quote, lot falls on us and we're found out. Then we'll confess our sin, right? Then we'll come clean. But oftentimes, in our sin, we conceal our sin. 
Jonah could have saved the sailors a good amount of trouble, a good deal of trouble. If he just would have come up deck and said, guys, listen, here's the thing. I'm in open rebellion. I'm running from my God. Turn the ship around immediately. Go back to port. Better yet, turn the ship around immediately. Let's go straight to Nineveh. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Straight to Nineveh. I read one pastor this week that said that that it's very possible that that Jonah and these sailors on this ship probably would have had the greatest tailwind they'd ever had if that ship had turned around and headed back to Nineveh. We try to manage sin. We try to conceal it until we're, quote, found out. But verse number 7 reminds us of the important lesson that your sin will always find you out. Write this down, Numbers 23, sorry, Numbers 32, 23. Numbers 32, 23, your sin will always find you out. Now, it's very possible that there are others on the ship, very possible that some of these sailors, these these mariners, or this captain were greater sinners than Jonah, yet the Lord pursues his own child. The storm is sent after Jonah because God has a work for him to do. God wants his prophet back. God has many ways of bringing to light concealed sin in sinners and making it manifest. God's right hand will always find out his servants. Even if they flee to the uttermost parts of the sea or go down into the sides of a ship, God's omnipotent hand and eye will always find his concealed From time to time, you may hear people say something like this, just follow your conscience. Maybe you even said that to someone before. I'm sure I probably have. Just follow your conscience. The problem with that counsel is that the conscience merely tells us what we ought to do. Or, I'm sorry, the, the problem with that is that our conscience tells us that we ought to do what is right, but it doesn't tell us what is right. God's Word tells us that. So just follow your conscience doesn't necessarily tell you what's right. It just tells you that you ought to do what is right. Our conscience, that internal warning system that God has given to all of us, he's hardwired all of us with, must be informed by the revealed word of God. And so for that instance, or for that reason rather, follow your conscience is not good counsel. Many people follow their conscience like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want to go, and they simply walk behind it. One sin always leads to a second and, what is interestingly, a less painful sin. That's the way that sin works. It's like spiritual leprosy. Unrepentant, persistent sin desensitizes our conscience, our internal warning system. What once bothered us doesn't bother us anymore. What once activated our conscience doesn't seem to do so anymore. What we knew was outside of God's boundaries and therefore functionally outside of our boundaries doesn't really matter to us anymore. And friends, let me tell you, that's a very scary place to be. It's a very scary place to be when your conscience is not active and tender and alert and vigilant. Persistent, unrepentant sin will do that. 
And I think Jonah's conscience is a bit dulled here in our text. He's not getting the memo yet that God wants his prophet back, that God is demanding obedience. Friends, write it down. Sin won't thwart God's plan, but God will not sit idly by when we're in sin. Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's another affirmative. Sin will mar your witness. Sin will mar your witness. Look back at your Bible for just a moment there. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then they said to him, the mariners or the sailors, tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, here's his answer, Jonah's answer, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? A good question, by the way, posed by non-believers, by the way, what have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You see, as soon as the sailors know that Jonah is the one that's responsible for the great storm that's threatening their lives, he is met with a barrage of questions. Look at verse 8. The sailors ask, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now again, there's some irony here. Jonah had proposed to run away from God and refused to preach to Gentile pagans, but in spite of his efforts, that's exactly what he's getting ready to do. Jonah's Jonah's checked out. He's clocked out. He's resigned or turned in his prophet card. He said, I don't want to go preach to Gentile pagans. But here he's asked five questions and he's getting ready to give an account to Gentile pagans. Irony. Irony. Remember, God is the lighthouse. And he says, change your course. The lighthouse doesn't move. Change your course, friends. It's very possible, as a matter of fact, that some of the crew on this ship were from Nineveh. These were Phoenician sailors, Greek sailors, Uh, It's very possible that some of the men, some of the crew on this ship were some of the very men that Jonah would have encountered in Nineveh at some point in time. Here he is getting ready to preach to them, or at least to give an answer. I don't think he's preaching uh, here because I think Jonah is still obstinate at this point in the text. But here's what we need to know. If God has determined to save a person or persons, that is exactly what he will do. God's plan cannot be thwarted, nor his will be halted. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 115.3, I would would commend this to your memory. Our God is in heaven, and he does what he pleases. You've already got it memorized. Our God is in heaven, and he does what he pleases. Psalm 115.3, God will accomplish his will again through the obedience of his people, which is always the best option, by the way, or he'll accomplish his will through the disobedience of his people or his servant. Now, Jonah speaks for the very first time in verses 9 and 10. This is the first time that Jonah opens his mouth in this account. 
He answered the five questions asked to him by the sailors, saying, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then look at this response. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Uh, the, the original language there is, then the men feared a great fear in the Hebrew. They were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now it's interesting, Jonah responded with no uncertainty, no uncertainty about his nationality. He said, I'm a Hebrew, which would have been the way that, that an Israelite or a Jew would have referred to themselves to an outsider. To, to, to call themselves Israel, that was kind of an inside name. Uh, but when an Israelite referred to themselves or, or, or told someone what people group they were from, if it was an outsider, they would refer to themselves as a Hebrew. And Jonah responded with no uncertainty about his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. He responded with no uncertainty about the worth and the power of his God. You see, though he was disobedient to God, at least Jonah knew what God was like. Jonah said that the Lord, which is Yahweh there, probably capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, Yahweh, the Lord, that's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Israel is his God. Jonah attested that his God is the God of heaven, the one true sovereign. That's in contrast, by the way. That's in contrast, stands in direct contrast to the many false gods affirmed by the sailors. Jonah affirmed that Yahweh is the creator, the one who made the sea and the land. This is a, a gr- grammatical, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of here? Um, Jonah employs a, a grammatical, uh, some English teacher help me with the word I'm thinking of. It's right here. Tool. Okay, there we go. A tool. When Jonah says the God of the land and the sea, that's everything from A to Z. Okay? He says, my God is the God of the land and the sea and everything in between. The creator, God of the world, who controls even nature, including storms on the sea. Now, It may seem strange that Jonah claimed to worship his God when yet he did not obey him, but friends, this is often true of us as well, is it not? Jonah claims to worship, Jonah claims to follow the very God with whom he is actively fleeing. We oftentimes do the same. You might or might not have picked up on this, but there's one question that Jonah did not answer. Jonah didn't answer the question, what is your occupation? Why? It's pretty challenging, isn't it? Jonah knows that he's a prophet. He was a successful prophet, by the way. If you go back and read in 2 Kings, Jonah knew exactly who he was. And here he is asked by pagan sailors, non-believers, tell us your occupation. Jonah doesn't answer that question. Jonah doesn't say, I'm a prophet of the Lord. He was no longer able to say that. Notice the response of the sailors. Three times we're told that these sailors were fearful. Again, these these were hardened mariners. These are guys that are used to crisscrossing, traversing the Mediterranean Sea, and three times we're told that they were fearful. In verse 5, they were afraid of the storm itself. In verse 10, 
which is where we are here. They're exceedingly afraid of the creator of the storm. And in verse 16, they're said to fear or to reverence the Lord of the storm. Though these were Gentile sailors, they certainly would have heard stories about the God of Israel. They would have known as they, as they crisscrossed the sea and as they pulled up to this port and that port and this port and that port, they, they would have heard stories about the gods of this area and the gods of this area and the gods of this region. And likewise, one would have to believe that they had heard stories about the God of Israel. They probably would have been familiar that it was Yahweh who sent the plagues on Egypt, that it was Yahweh who parted the Red Sea, that it was Yahweh who was with his people in Israel, or in the wilderness, rather, for 40 years. It was Yahweh who leveled the walls at Jericho, and it was Yahweh who called the sun to stand still and the skies over Gibeon. They probably would have heard those stories, and now Jonah is saying, that is my God. And I'm running from him. And the storm is on account of my sin. You can imagine they would be fearful. Reminds me of a verse that the writer of the Hebrews penned when he said, it is a fearful thing or a dreadful thing, finish the sentence, to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jonah couldn't answer the question, what's your occupation? Because he was actively in sin. And sin will do the same thing to us, friends. It'll mar our witness. It'll mar our witness if we keep on and we persist in it. Because we say, here's my God. Here's, here's who I worship. Here's the one, at least with my mouth, that I, that I say is precious and a treasure and a valuable, the pearl of great price to me when my actions practically deny it. Sin will mar your witness, brothers and sisters. Third and last this morning, sin causes radical problems and demands a radical solution. Sin causes radical problems and demands a radical solution. Let your eyes fall back to the text there. Look beginning in verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There's that word hurl again. The Lord hurled the storm. Now Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, look at this. The men rowed even harder to get back to dry land. The Hebrew text there is they dug their oars in even harder. They were digging their oars in to try to get back to dry land. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish on this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Interesting to note that these Gentile pagan sailors here see something that Jonah doesn't see and that's that God does what pleases him. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. There's that word again. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared. There's that word feared for the third time in verse 16. The Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, let's talk about this phrase. Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. Jonah's heart, I think, is revealed in his response in verse 11. The question was, what shall we do to you? 
What comes out of Jonah's mouth reveals his heart. Luke 6.45, by the way, out of an overflow of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. Jonah's heart is revealed in his response to the question in verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Jonah answers in verse 12, and he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then it'll quiet down for you because I know that it is on my account or because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, notice this. It wasn't the sailor's idea to throw Jonah overboard. That's ironic. If you're a non-believing sailor and you catch wind, no pun intended, that the storm that is battering your boat is the result of one man's disobedience, you would think that every sailor on that boat would have had Jonah over the side quicker than he can say, hurl me. But it wasn't the sailor's idea. It was Jonah's idea to be hurled overboard. Now, on the surface, this appears to be an admirable idea. But is Jonah being a Hebrew or a hero here? He is a Hebrew. Is he being a hero here? I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that Jonah has the salvation of the sailors in mind here when he says, hurl me over. I don't think Jonah was a martyr. I think Jonah was playing the martyr. Martyrs die for the glory of God, but Jonah offered to die because he would rather die than obey God. Jonah's playing the part here, I think. Remember that Jonah didn't refuse to go to Nineveh for fear of failure, but for fear of success. Jonah knew, again, that God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And so I think Jonah thought this would be his final way out of his assignment. Hey, guys, just drown me. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. I think that's exactly what we see here in the text. But let me remind you again, God's plan will not be thwarted. God has other plans, as we'll see pick back up in verse 17 next week. Jonah should have responded to the sailor's question. Remember, the question is, what shall we do to you? The storm may quiet down for us. Jonah should have responded to the sailor's question. By saying, again, I've sinned against the Lord. God wants me to go and preach to Nineveh. I've tried to run away. The storm is a result of my rebellion. Turn the ship around and take me back to Joppa. Better yet, take me straight to Nineveh. But Jonah's actual answer shows the hard condition of his heart. Instead of repenting of his sin, Jonah would rather be killed. Jonah would rather die in, in, the, in the waters of the Mediterranean Sea than obey God. And it's interesting here, and I'll be, I'll be quick to, to admit that, that some commentators, some, some pastors, some Bible teachers think that Jonah is repentant in verse 9 and 10, but I think Jonah has his arms crossed until chapter 2. I think that Jonah's answering some questions, but I think Jonah thinks, oh, I can get out of this. Just toss me into the, into the ocean, I'll be dead, and then I can't go to Nineveh. I think Jonah has his arms crossed until we see repentance expressed from cries from the deep in chapter 2. Again, here's some irony. We've seen a lot of it already. Here's a little more. It's interesting to note that Jonah, in his disobedience, is quite willing that all the inhabitants of Nineveh should perish 
For his message is one of impending judgment. And his fear is that it might be suspended, God's judgment on Nineveh might be suspended if he should go and and preach to them and they in turn repent. But ironically, the sailors, themselves pagans, like the people of Nineveh, are unwilling that Jonah, just one man, should perish even though he has brought them into this position of great danger. Jonah says, throw me overboard. What do the sailors do? The Hebrew says they dig their oars in even harder and try to row to land. The whole grammar of the book of Jonah seems to emphasize the futility of human efforts and the successful acts of God. You see that interwoven all throughout this book the futility of human efforts and the successful acts of God. God is sovereign. You see, against their desire, the sailors call out after they figure out they they can't make it to land, and they call out to the Lord and say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. Let me pause right there. The sailors aren't saying that Jonah is innocent. I think all the sailors are saying is, We weren't there. Here's what he's telling us. If he really is innocent, we don't want to be guilty. We don't want to offend your God for killing your prophet. Okay? Remember, polytheists, a whole pantheon of gods they would have had, and they would have been very afraid of offending Jonah's God. And so they say, gosh, if if the guy's innocent, please forgive us. We're just doing what he told us to do. Again, we see these pagan sailors are more upright in some places than Jonah. They didn't want to be responsible for his death, even though Jonah didn't care if he lived or died. Now, let me, let me land the plane here. We're, we're at our time. One of the radiant truths of the book of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord. We'll see that statement over in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He can use whomever he wants, whenever he wants. Sadly, Jonah was running away from God so that pagan sinners in Nineveh would not be saved. And so what does God do again? God puts Jonah out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea on a boat full of Gentile pagan sailors. He's got a captive audience, some of which might have even been Ninevites. So Jonah was going to be a witness for the Lord even in his obediently going to Nineveh or in his disobedient fleeing. Look at verse 16 now. Jonah writes, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It's feared a great fear. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What's taking place here? What's taking place? I would submit to you, I'll readily tell you that commentators and Bible teachers are divided on the answer here, but I would submit to you that we see genuine conversion of some of these pagan sailors. I think that some of these sailors came to know Yahweh personally right here in verse 16. I think that some of these sailors turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, right here in verse 16. Here's why I say that. The sailors refer to Yahweh five times in verses 14 and 16. But did you notice how they were saved? There's a great picture here. They were saved by the substitution of Jonah. Jonah was hurled into the sea, and then the sea ceased from its raging. 
Jonah was thrown into, here's the picture, Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's wrath that the sailors might be saved from the storm. That is the gospel in Jonah. We say that the gospel is like a scarlet thread that runs all the way through Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That is the gospel here in Jonah. That is the picture That's the allegory here in Jonah. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah, hurled himself into the storm of God's wrath so that broken, destitute sinners like you and like me might be saved from certain destruction. Now, God was using Jonah in spite of his disobedience. But this all points down the road to a cross on Calvary's hill. While Jonah was a sacrificial substitute for the sailors caught in the physical storm, Jesus offers himself as the sacrificial substitute for the spiritual storm of God's wrath. Brothers, sisters, friends, are you in him? Are you found in him? Are you clothed in his righteousness, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes by faith? If not, you are staring down the barrel of the wrath of a thrice holy God. And just like Jonah, you will not get away. You won't. You won't get away. This is a storm that we're all in. Whether you feel, you feel, don't, don't, do, don't do feelings, guys. Put, put feelings in the passenger seat or in the back seat of the car. Don't ever put them in the driver's seat, okay? But even if you feel like the ship of your life is steady, And it's not about to be broken into pieces. The truth remains that it is appointed once for man to die, and then there's judgment. Jesus hurled himself into judgment so that God could show mercy to sinners. Do you know that gospel? Have you received that gospel by faith and repentance? Let me close this morning. Close your Bibles. Just give me your eyeballs. To close this morning, let me share with you just a short story about a little caterpillar. A little short story about a caterpillar. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this caterpillar in his collection of articles entitled The Sword and the Trowel. This is what he says. While I was walking in the garden one bright morning, a breeze came through and set all the flowers and leaves, here's some old language, a fluttering. Now, That's the way the flowers talk. So I picked up my ears and listened. Presently, an elder tree, an old tree in the garden, said, Flowers, shake off all your caterpillars. Why? said a dozen altogether. For they were like some children who always say why when they're told to do anything. And the old wise tree said, If you don't shake them off, they'll gobble you up. So the flowers set themselves a-shaking till the caterpillars were all shaken off. But in the middle of one of the beds, there was a beautiful rose who shook off all the caterpillars but one. She said to herself, Oh, that one's a beauty. I'll keep just that one. The elder tree overheard her and called out, One caterpillar is enough to spoil you. But the rose said, But look at his brown crimson fur. And look at his black eyes and his scores of little feet. I want to keep him. Surely one won't hurt me. A few morning after I passed that rose again, there was not a leaf on her 
all her beauty was gone. She was all but killed and only had life enough to weep over her folly while the tears stood like dewdrops on her tattered leaves. Alas, she said, I did not think that one little caterpillar would ruin me. Now, what does this story teach us? Well, it teaches us that one sin indulged has sunk many a ship's. Brothers and sisters, is there a caterpillar or caterpillars you need to be shaking off, some caterpillars of disobedience that you need to be shaking off this morning? If so, I encourage you to do it and do it without delay. Do it and do it without delay. Some of you need to shake the caterpillars off for the first time and come home. Come home to the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation in him. Some of you who are here this morning and know Christ savingly but are in disobedience and sin need to shake off the caterpillars and again come home because only one caterpillar can sink the ship. Let's pray. Let me give you just a moment here. Maybe you need to do some business with the Lord right where you sit and uh, I'll pray for us in just a minute. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, we ask that you would search us and know us, that you would see if there is any grievous way in us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Father, I pray as a local church, we would be found to be holy before you. Indeed, Jesus, that was your command to your bride, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Lord, we confess that we miss the mark, we sin. We arrogantly disobey. We turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to your word, to your call. God, I pray that you would grant us fresh repentance this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would poke and prod and move in our hearts uh, in such a way that we would be compelled to repentance. God, I pray if there be a person here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ savingly, that you would draw that person to yourself. God, that you would help them to see the folly of their way, that you would help them to see with clarity of, of eyes as much as they can in their lostness that they are staring down the wrath of God. And then, God, would you melt their heart of stone like wax and draw them to yourself. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.